Hey, everybody, wanted to come to you real quick before I start today's show to let you know, in case you haven't heard, that in our Lions of Liberty store, we have a brand new coffee mug. It is a taxation is death mug. That's right. People say, libertarians say, taxation is theft. And you know what? It is theft, but you know what it leads to? It leads to death. It leads to war. It leads to the war on drugs. It leads to all kinds of suffering in the streets of this country right here. Taxation is death. It's a new phrase that is going to catch over across this nation. It says that on the one side of the mug. The other side has our awesome Are You Ready to Roar logo. Pick it up in the Lions of Liberty store today, which can be found at lionsofliberty.store, where you can also find all of our merchandise, our t-shirts, sweatshirts, all kinds of different things from Felony Friday, Electric Liberty Land, our Are You Ready to Roar line. We have a bunch of different stuff in the Lions of Liberty store. Please check it out today. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday. It's a weekly show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast where we're looking at the broken criminal justice system. And my favorite way to do that is to bring on human beings who have been through this system, who have suffered through uh, the prison system. They've overcome obstacles, and uh, they are here on this show to share their story. And I got a great one for you today. I can't wait for you to hear my guest story this week. Today's episode is episode 194. That means uh, the show notes can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF194. As you know, Felony Friday is only one of three shows on this podcast feed here. We have our show every Monday, hosted by Mark Clare. It's our flagship program. It is mostly centered around interviews, Mark interviewing leaders in the liberty movement. Our Wednesday show is hosted by Brian McWilliams. It is your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. Very entertaining show. Get all three, subscribe, just go wherever you listen to this podcast, go to that app and pound that subscribe button. Please do it today. If they have a way to leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, please do that. Leave a review. Give us five stars. It helps us with the fancy algorithm. So let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Matt Freeman. Matt is the host of the Statist Quo podcast. He's also an Iraq War veteran uh, who was discharged um, from the Army for his drug use. Uh, Later after that, he got tied up in in a bit of a uh, selling drugs and was arrested for trafficking in dangerous drugs, which was the result of a multiple controlled by, you know, the standard thing where uh, the cops flip someone, get the multiple deals in a row in order to charge you with as much as possible. Resulting from that, he was able to plead down to three years in prison, uh, serving the last six of that in a halfway house. Um, Since then, since being released, uh, he's taught himself how to repair cars in order to make himself more marketable and valuable and to make a living. And uh, he's doing that while he plans his next move. Matt, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks for having me on, John. 
Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. And you know, I was really glad that you uh, you reached out to me um, with your story. I mean, for, for one thing, because you you are a fellow libertarian too, and you know, I talk about all the time this story, a story like yours, um, and really all stories of nonviolent offenses. People are really starting to come together on them to agree that they're. Really, the sentences are too long, that people are you know, put in these terrible conditions in prison. People who are on the left, the right, the center, whatever, um, are agreeing that we need criminal justice reform, which in this time in this country with how divisive things are, it's, it's nice to agree on something. But uh, So that's why I was, I was glad uh, you agreed to come on, especially being a libertarian. And you know, I start with all of my guests just to give a little taste of your background so people know where you came from, like what your circumstances were growing up, because people come from all kinds of different backgrounds. If you could just kind of share like what your early years were like, what, you know, what part of the country you grew up in, stuff like that. Sure. So I grew up in a small town in Ohio. I mean, population, maybe 10,000. And I come from a long line of uh, military service. It wasn't necessarily expected, but it was certainly strongly encouraged. Uh, my dad was a Marine, my brother's a Marine, uh, Navy family through and through, uh, way on back. So uh, the only really big dream I had growing up, when I wanted to do my entire life when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. But we didn't have a ton of money, so there's really only one path to get there, uh, to get the you know $250,000 plus you need for medical school, mm-hmm. and that's to join the military. And then uh, I was in high school when 9-11 happened, so that made it all uh, the much easier to join up. So I did sign up for the army in 2004, and I was a uh, 16. So you, you were in high school. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, 9/11 happens. Were you a, a senior in high school, or were you what, what year were you in high school? Do you remember? I was a sophomore. So, <laughs> you, so you still had to wait a couple more years than, than to join after that. But that's that's when you you made the decision you were going in. Yeah, yeah. It was something I've been on the fence uh, about already. But when we all got wrapped up in a giant thing of patriotism right after 9-11. Right, right. It just made it that much easier. Uh, and I did graduate before the invasion of Iraq, but not before the invasion of Afghanistan. So uh, mm-hmm. I think I would have been a sophomore. <laughs> it's been it's been a while, man. So, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so anyway, so I, uh, I was a 68 Whiskey, which is an uh, Army healthcare specialist. Now there's a bazillion different jobs you can have with this MOS. Uh, but the one that I had, I was what's called a line medic. And when people think of the word combat medic, that's what they think of. It's somebody that's attached to a platoon of soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're responsible for their day-to-day care, for immunizations, for a sick call, minor injuries, things like that. But also, you go with them uh, when they go into combat. So when people think of a medic, what they're thinking of is a line medic. And now, of course, that's not the only job you can do in the Army, but that's certainly been the one that's the most uh, glamorized out of all of them. Uh, real life, not so much so. But mm-hmm. after going through AIT, advanced training, I was stationed down at Fort Hood, Texas. And uh, I deployed to Baghdad in late 2006 for 15 months. Uh, and not to get derailed here on a huge thing, I could talk for 10 hours about that. Right. But, I mean, we did what we did. It was boring the first few months. Uh, we were working checkpoints a lot, uh, mostly near the green zone, which was one of the safer parts of Baghdad at that point in time. Uh, and after the coin strategy started in early 2007, we were pushed out to the districts around the green zone to do the coin type stuff, which was manning traffic control points, monitoring traffic coming in and out, uh, mounted patrols, foot patrols, which of course we used to call uh, freedom circles. 
because they were as pointless as they were dangerous. What, and we also did. What's the system? You're the, the coin system or yeah, uh, counterinsurgency, okay. which was the if you remember the surge from 06 to 08. Right, right. Petraeus and the Crystals brainchild, they decided that we could win this war by instead of uh, fighting the enemy by just being really nice guys and showing them that we could uh, be their security force better than their indigenous security force could. So the entire idea was to almost blend uh, community policing with military action. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's about the, the best explanation I can give for it. It is, it is totally insane. It's like lit- literal nation building. Like exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like part of that job included counting the number of trash cans on the street, seeing how many electrical wires uh, came into transformers. It's all types of stuff that you don't think of a military unit doing uh, ever. And plus, I mean, we did other things too. We were, uh, we did security, we did convoys, just about anything you can think of that uh, yeah, army unit was doing at that time. That's what we were doing. Uh, and like I said, we did what we did. We unleashed a, a demon across that country. Uh, and it wasn't just the radicals. I mean, it was gag violence too. Suffice to say, it was, it was pretty ugly. Uh, I got back in early 2008 and I was fine for uh, quite a few months. I wasn't having any major problems. But after a while, I started having severe back pain. And I can pinpoint it to one day we went out on a field training exercise and mm-hmm. uh, the second lieutenants in the army get, get crazy ideas from, from time to time. We caught getting a tap on the shoulder from the good idea fairy and they, uh, they, they want to impress their bosses. So they often will have us do all kinds of insane training. And we were, we were essentially, we were doing a, uh, it's called a ruck march. So you put on this huge, heavy rucksack and, you know, basically go on a hike with it. And uh, we were we had packs that were so heavy that day that you had to sit on the ground to put it on and buckle it up, and then you had to have two of your friends grab your arms and pull you up Jeez. with it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So uh, got so that if, done. If you fell over with it, you were just like a turtle. You, could. you were exactly <laughs> just like a turtle. So we uh, <clears throat> we came back that night, went to bed, got up the next morning, and I had severe back pain. I mean, could not move. This wasn't the thing that did it but it was certainly the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, and I tried to tough it out for a little while, but it was so bad. I was having, you know, bouts of insomnia, which was, I was already having kind of trouble with in the first place. It would come and go. Uh, so I went to sit call and usually you get the run around from the medical staff. But since I was a medic, I worked with all those guys and I mm-hmm. kind of was able to rub elbows with the doctor and I begged him to give me something for the pain so I could keep working. Uh, he agreed and he gave me some Vicodin. Uh, as a prescription. And this was my first real experience with pain meds. I mean, I knew all about pain control and pain medicine being a medic, but I'd never taken them before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is something that's actually really common. Uh, There's one out of today, one out of five uh, active duty troops in the United States army uh, is on some type of pain medication. So uh, really, yeah, it's very, very common Still today. Wow. Yeah. It really goes, it speaks to the, uh, just the amount that your body just gets beat, not even being in combat or anything like that, just just from being in garrison. I mean, just they, it just beats the crap out of you. They're all just to it. So I started taking these pills, and not only did my back pain go away, but I had slept like a baby the whole time. I felt great. I really felt refreshed. Uh, after a couple of weeks, though, I ran out, and I went back to him, and I asked for some more. 
And of course he's like, look, man, I can't give you any more. It was already kind of risky for me to do this, you know, unless you want to be on profile, unless you want to declare an injury, I really can't help you much. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, fine. And it was about this time I started having really bad problems with insomnia. I would have night terrors, wake up screaming all night. I was almost late for formation a couple of times because I couldn't sleep. I was, I was starting to coming off those pain pills was really the first time I started to really have problems with post-traumatic stress. And I had already decided at that point, there was no way I was going to go and ask for help from mental health because I had, I had seen what they had done to other people with, with post-traumatic stress problems. Um, like I what, mean, what, I, what types of, what had they done? Like, uh, there was a major push for uh, behavioral health professionals in the army to uh, give um, diagnosis for uh, personality disorders instead of PTSD uh, when they went to go discharge people. And that way they were ineligible for benefits. They might not be eligible for an honorable discharge. I mean, it really screws you in, in later life because a lot of your benefits are dependent on the type of discharge you have. So, uh, I mean, I had had a, we had had one guy who was, uh, breaking down crying during field training exercises. I mean, just a complete mess. And he went and he went and talked to mental health. And that was the last time we saw him. They, they, they ended up discharging him from the army. And that day we were all standing around and our platoon sergeant comes out and starts yelling and screaming at us saying, if any of you guys think you're going to play that PTSD, you know, card, you can forget it. You want help? You raise your hand right now. And of course, you know, nobody's going to raise their hand and get and talk to you like yeah, that. So he basically says, if you're going to play that card, don't play it and raise your hand if you want help. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And in that type of situation, no, they're, they're, that's not exactly a, a healing environment. No. Uh, but yeah, they would just completely, they would process people out right away. They would say that you're a risk to yourself or others say you're not mission capable. I mean, yeah, not a good thing, especially when you're, you know, 23 years old and you're planning on spending 20 years in the army. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a career killer for guys. Even, even if they do uh, give you your benefits, I mean, it's still, you're, you're done at that point. So I figured I'd tough it out and I'd just get better sooner or later. Now, in the meantime, I was still having trouble sleeping. So I did the only thing that I knew to do. And I started getting pain pills from other sources because believe it or not, it's pretty easy to get drugs on a military base. There's uh, all kinds of pills, especially pills floating around there. And that went on for a little while. Uh, I was taking them on and off, not every day. Uh, then one day, we all get waking up out of bed at 0330, like way too early for anything, by a couple NCOs and an officer. And they told us to get dressed, come with them. Well, it turns out somebody had stolen drugs from the uh, secure med storage in our in our medical team. And... Uh, Narcotics is just like uh, all their types of sensitive items in the army, just like, just like in the civilian world. I mean, they're kept under lock and key. There's logs in and out. I mean, they're mm -hmm. supposed to be controlled whenever uh, some are used. It's supposed to be recorded, and it's a whole process. So anyway, we all get lined up for a whiz quiz, and I failed for a drug that I had not been prescribed. So I got walked over to the uh, TMP's building, and I sit down with this staff sergeant, uh, and meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, I've got a couple NCOs uh, searching my barracks room. They're going over the control logs. I mean, investigating this uh, theft. Mm -hmm. And he starts grilling me about 
uh, what did I steal from secure meds and where's the rest of it? What'd you do with it? Did you sell it? Did you do it? Like what's going on here, man? And I was dumbstruck because nobody told me anything at this point yet. I was dumbstruck as to what he was talking about. And after, uh, they they hadn't even told you that you failed the test. Well, I knew I had failed the test, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know why we were being given the test. They just told us to get up and come with them. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And, he must've realized that I was telling the truth after a while because I asked what drugs were missing. And he told me, uh, fentanyl and morphine sulfate, which are two very common drugs that medics will use on the battlefield. And, uh, I said, well, dude, I tested positive for Percocets. So it's not like that's the drug I stole out of the locker. And, uh, he said, Oh, we'll see. We'll see when that test, when the test comes back from the lab, which you fell for. So after a couple of days, it did come back and I met with this guy again, who's the investigator. Anytime anybody fails a drug test in the military, uh, you have to meet with military police and investigator and they want to know where you got it from and why you did it or, or how you did it or, you know, all these types of things. Like this. Mm-hmm. There's a whole form that's got to be filled out. So anyway, after I met with him again, he informed me that I was facing charges A through Z and I was going to do a bazillion years at Leavenworth. Unless, of course, I, I could help myself and I could start helping myself by confessing to, to using these, these drugs. And, I mean, I must have convinced him that I had nothing to do with the theft because he didn't mention that. And funny story, years later, it turns out they found out, well, I found out, it was one of the nurses in the unit. So this whole thing got set off by something that <laughs> I didn't even do in the first place. Right. I happened to get caught up in uh, the investigation that took, after, took, took place afterwards. So he goes and he types up a confession and he has me sign it and he sent me on my way. He said, you made the, you did the right, did the right thing. So I said, okay, cool. And, uh, also I'd like to note, uh, there is a substance abuse program for, uh, people in the military. Uh, but it only protects you from punitive action is if you confess to it before you test positive. So something like that wouldn't help me anyway, which I mean, the whole kind of idea. Which of, how many people are going to do that? I exactly. Mean. Yes. <laughs> I'd imagine not very many. So after, after I had met with the investigator, I mean, the word had spread in the unit, what had happened. And uh, these guys, like my, my brothers, my best friends I had in the world, they treated me like I had some type of airborne contagious AIDS, man. I mean, like I was a leper, even, even most of my close friends. And I mean, I, I don't know. I was, I was good at my job. Those guys all trusted me with their lives. I was highly motivated. I was fit. I was a good shot. I had excellent marks. I was really respected by my, most of my superiors. But all of that changed that day. I mean, they say it's a band of brothers and you make lifelong friends. And, uh, you know, we'll help you if you need it. We're here for you. Uh, one, of our, one of the Army's goals is to have good uh, soldier welfare but once you need that help, they're, they're really quick to turn, mm-hmm. turn the sword right back around on you. So, Hey, if, if I can just go back and ask a question. Sure, of course. Just, just for understanding, because people in the audience might be thinking this. So when you had the really bad back pain, um, you mentioned you, you went in and, and you, got the, you got the Percocet, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't on the books. It wasn't on your, on your record, right? So what would be the reason why you wouldn't want to have a medical problem like having back pain or some sort of injury like that on your file? Well, I'd actually, I'd gotten, I didn't make this clear or I didn't make this clear. Excuse me. I had gotten a prescription written, but it was for Vicodin. And normally you have a buffer 
when you take a, when you get any type of controlled substance for you to take that substance and for it to show up in a drug test and not have any action taken against you. But the drug I had failed, I had failed for was Percocet. So oxycodone versus hydrocodone. Yeah. And if I, if I would have just stuck to Vicodin, I probably could have pulled it off to be honest, but yeah, that's not what I had done. Okay. So yeah, it wasn't like an off the books type of thing. I don't think you would have done that. It was an, it was legit prescription. So, so you were just talking about when I interrupted you, but uh, you were talking about how sort of the people around you were, were turning on you. Um, Yeah. So, so where did, where did that lead to? Well, I gotten called to the battalion commander's office, who's my boss's 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 boss, uh, in charge of the entire battalion, about 450 guys, uh, lieutenant colonel, somebody who you don't want to be on a, a, a name-to-name basis with. If you are, it means you're probably in pretty big trouble. So I've been given a uh, Article 15, which this is a what's called a non-judicial punishment, and this is for minor misconduct. And it says right on it, minor misconduct. But he had unceremoniously, I might add, told me that I was being given this Article 15 and I was being administratively separated with bad paper. And I mean, you know, I, it, it, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I was not expecting that. I figured I'd get in a little bit of trouble, get some extra duty, but I hadn't had any disciplinary action. I'd been a good mm-hmm. soldier. I'd done everything that was asked of me. Uh, no. So what, what, what does that mean to be separated with bad paper? So there's several different types of discharge uh, when you get out of the military. The one that people are most commonly familiar with is honorable discharge, which means basically uh, you did everything that was asked of you. You performed the standards, and uh, you're eligible for all types of benefits, GI Bill, VA home loans, VA health care, uh, anything and everything. Uh, there's three other ones called uh, general discharge under honorable, uh, general other than honorable and then uh, bad conduct and dishonorable. So they, there's a range of uh, reasons that you might get any, any of these, but basically anything other than honorable discharge will severely hamper your uh, ability to get benefits. And what bad paper means is that's an administrative separation. So that basically means that uh, any field grade officer can kick you out and they don't have to necessarily go through all the same uh, procedures as they would if they were to court martial you. So it's kind of a way for commanders to, to get rid of problem soldiers, like ones that have post-traumatic stress disorder. But when you've been discharged with bad paper, that means you're not eligible for any benefits. You're not eligible for the GI Bill. You're not eligible for VA health care. Um, that last one has changed a little bit. And uh, the VA opens it opens the doors up a little bit to people that have had bad paper discharge in the last couple of years. Basically, it means that, uh, <laughs> at least I used to think, you have no honor that that's there's you know like you might as well have not even served the military once you've had a, if you have a bad paper discharge because you're not even technically a veteran you're a former service member because the term veteran is reserved for people that have an honorable discharge and, and, this, uh, and this all happened because you failed one drug test that's correct you would think that would happen more in the uh in the military. You, I mean, you would think that'd be more common, I guess. You know what I mean? Well, Failing drug, maybe drug tests aren't given that often. Well, they're fairly, well, it depends on 
what you're doing, what kind of unit you're in. And I mean, they are fairly frequent. Uh, you're certainly going to, if you have any type of leave, you're going to get one when you get back then you get a pre and post deployment. There's certain times where you know you get one. And plus there's also randoms, but it actually, it does happen to a lot of people. Uh, here's the, here's the problem though. Well, not necessarily the problem, but here's the thing is that commanders have a wide range of latitude as far as your punishment goes, because in a, in a situation like this, uh, I mean, the battalion commander, could have given me the article 15, right? Which meant extra duty. That usually means getting busted down a rank. So they reduced you in rank. And it also means that they'll dock your pay. Could have given me that and let me stay in because there was a Sergeant in our unit that smoked some pot with his subordinates, got caught, failed a drug test and uh, he got to stay in. So the punishment's not applied evenly is part of the problem, but hundreds like of thousands of people. What had happened then is that I got, I was being told I was discharged, but first I had to serve my extra duty and my restrictions. So I had 30 days of extra duty, which basically means menial tasks, cleaning, landscaping, this type of thing. And 30 days of restriction, which basically means that you can't go off post, you can't go to the store, uh, basically have to sit in your barracks. And after that, I was told to pack up my stuff. I signed some papers and I was walked off the post by MPs. And, uh, and that was that. So, I just want to say this real quick. Mm -hmm. I had this beaten into my head. In the army, they tell you, we never leave a man behind, no matter what. You know, the last line of the medic's creed is these things we do so that others may live. One team, one fight, all this type of stuff like that. Yet, I don't really think that the army and the U.S. government as a whole really believes that. Because if we're downrange and one of my guys gets shot or sprains his ankle or whatever, it's my job to pick him up and get him to safety to treat him and to ensure his survival. Uh, it should be the same way when it comes to a mental health casualty, mm -hmm. but when it comes to command and you know, bureaucracy in general, it's a one way street, man. The army has left hundreds of thousands of people behind. And just like me, those, those slogans, they're just empty lip service to them. And this was really a valuable lesson to, to realize that the government does not care about you. They don't even care about themselves, their own people. And, at that point, when I got out, I didn't care. I just wanted out. And I continued to use pain pills off and on. I never really got to the point where I was physically addicted. I was very careful to avoid that because, I mean, being a medic, you know, about the power of opiates, I'd, I had uh, gotten a little too trigger happy with fentanyl and plenty of casualties. And we carry, we carry Narcan for a reason because that's something that uh, a lot of inexperienced medics will do. So, um, I mean, I was still dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Wait, wait, wait. You say you got a little trigger happy. What, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, you have to, you have to, when you give somebody uh, fentanyl or morphine sulfate or any of these really powerful mm -hmm. drugs, the fentanyl is in suckers, but the morphine is, is injectable. You have to calculate the dosage based on uh, weight. And uh, a lot, most guys will use a rough formula and it's pretty easy to overdo it because, because of the power of these drugs, especially someone that doesn't have like an opiate tolerance. So mm -hmm. we all carry uh, naloxone and Narcan, which of course is the opioid antidote. So what I was saying is that I, I've seen how powerful these drugs were and I didn't want to get on the wrong side of them right? Um, because of that. Right. Right. Which I mean, is, is what we see with, uh, you're, I mean, you're talking about a fentanyl, you're talking about medical grade fentanyl. I mean, the people here fentanyl today, maybe their mind goes to the black market fentanyl is responsible right. for, so, for so many deaths just because of that reason, because it's so powerful Absolutely. and it's, uh, 
a lot of people who, who OD on drugs, it's very rare that someone's trying intentionally to OD from off a black market drug. It's just like you said, you know, they're, they're on the wrong side of it. Maybe, or maybe they don't even, they probably don't even know the fentanyl's even in it. It's something that it's just, uh, just slipped in there. Yeah, that would be my guess. Um, I mean, it's not like drug addicts carry around field test kits with them. Right. So after I got out, I was kind of drifting for a while. I was, I mean, I was having night terrors. I was having tremors. I was having trouble sleeping. I was, you know, I was having severe depression, anxiety. I was really angry. I mean, I was, that was the main thing. I was really, really mad. I was mad at the world. Um, just bitter because I'd felt like I had been, you know, kind of treated unfairly and, oh, well, you know, maybe I had been, but anyway, I, so I did you, you mentioned at, at the beginning that your, your family, you know, came from, you came from a military family. Mm-hmm. What was your family's reaction to, to this? I didn't tell them. I was afraid really? to, I was afraid to tell my dad. I didn't tell him until about five years later. Wow. And, uh, he, uh, he, he took it pretty well at that point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was, I was terrified that they would be disappointed in me because I was disappointed in myself. Um, this is back when I was really drinking the Kool-Aid heavy still. And I thought that my, my worth as a man was tied to my military service. And, but then basically what the army was saying is that you have no honor. And I mean, I really do think that, I mean, we know about post-traumatic stress disorder. I really do think there is a thing such as bad paper trauma where guys get administratively separated from the military for really stupid reasons. And, uh, it's the same charge, whether you sexually assaulted somebody or it's the same end result, whether you sexually assaulted somebody or if you failed a drug test, it's the same Mm -hmm. end result. So I think that does really contribute to some guys' problems. Um, Total number of separations for bad paper, I think is in the low hundreds of thousands. So it's not, and when you think about the number of vets in America, it's not an insanely common thing that happens, but for the people that it does happen to, I think it is certainly something that is very hard to deal with. Yeah, and I, I I could totally see, you know, how that could play out, especially with someone like yourself coming from a background where, you know, you identify so much with the patriotism, with thinking you're doing the exact right thing, and, and you're fighting, you know, and you're fighting for a just cause, um, and then you just have that completely have really your identity just grabbed and stripped away yes. from you, and say, guess Absolutely. what, not anymore. Um, yeah, heck yeah! I could see how that could that could, that could send someone on a downhill spiral. Yeah, I, I exactly. Yeah, having your identity taken from you. Mm-hmm. So I was drifting for a while, and I got a job for a little while as an EMT because I still had my EMS certification. Part of when you go through training as a medic, they make you register with the National Registry of EMTs as a basic EMT. So I did have that, um, and I did that for about a year and a half until I got fired for well doing drugs again. <laughs> uh, and I moved back, uh, to Ohio at this point to my hometown. Uh, I worked at a Firestone, uh, basically just doing tires and changing oil, really basic vehicle maintenance. And I also had a job in the summers working for a roofing company doing roofing. And, uh, I didn't realize at the time how much I was, I was hurting that I was like suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because once I moved back, I mean, it had gotten a lot worse. And I imagine hearing gunshots or explosions that weren't really there. I'd go weeks without real sleep. I'd investigate any bump in the knife and bump in the night with my shotgun, ready to shoot somebody, uh, handshaking, tremors, 
uh, I would, anytime a car would, I lived out in the country at that point in time, anytime, anytime a car would drive down the road, I'd have to stick my head out the window and see what they were doing and make sure they weren't stopping a little ways down the road. Um, I mean, I was, like I said, I was, I was bad. I waited until two o'clock in the morning to get groceries. I had extreme anxiety in public places. I could not go to Walmart it, during the day. I, I just couldn't do it. I tried plenty of times mm-hmm. and I'd get there and I'd park my car and I'd get out and I'd get a couple feet in front of the front door and turn right around and go back. I just couldn't do it. So I, I was dealing with severe depression, mania, anxiety, and tons and tons of anger, anger and rage. Um, I mean, I wanted to die. And I not only was struggling with what I had seen and done in Iraq, which was finally starting to come home and really, really hit me, especially because at this point in time, I was really questioning the morality of what we had, what we had done there. Um, but I was also dealing with the, that, that bad paper trauma, the humiliation uh, and the, the moral injury from it. I mean, people, I'd see them around town. It's a small town. Everybody knows uh, who you are. My grandmother had a, enormous yellow ribbon tied around this oak tree, you know, until I came home is that type of thing. And, uh, people would ask me, Oh, why didn't you get veteran plates? Or, you know, where were you going to go to college with your GI bill money? And that's not something you can exactly explain to somebody within a one minute conversation. Right. Uh, most people, if you tell, if I told them bad paper, they would think it means dishonorable discharge, which is definitely not the same thing. That's something that's given out usually after a long stint in a military prison. Yeah, well, that's that's when that's why I asked you to clarify that because I think most people, myself included, didn't understand that. Yeah, I think that's a good call. But uh, it is it is funny is that your country, like the one that I volunteered to defend, uh, saying that you have no honor, that your service is not worth anything at all. This is the same. This is the same organization that has a unit that has death for dishonor, you know, in their regimental coat of arms, and. You know, also when I die, like I'm not going to get military honors at my funeral. Uh, I was out there risking my butt just like everybody else in my platoon, some of which also went through the same thing. It's really, it's really, it is something that if you let it get in your head, it definitely will cause you a lot of problems. So I was dealing with this type of stuff. And uh, I mean, I couldn't, couldn't at this point I couldn't go to the VA, not that I wanted to anyway. I didn't even bother trying to apply at this point because it's the VA has its own um, approval or denial process for you getting care separate from the military. They do take your discharge into account and depending on the circumstances, they might grant you care or not, or they might tell you you can come here and get care, but you have a copay. I wasn't even dealing with it. I I literally couldn't at that point in time. Plus the closest VA to my house where I lived was an hour and a half away. Mm-hmm. So I was using pain pills. Uh more and more often to feel normal, to, to feel okay. And this is something I try to really drill into people is that most people don't do drugs to get high. They do drugs to feel normal. Uh, to, you know, like, uh, like, <laughs> like Mises, the, the normal, the state of, uh, human humans act because they're uncomfortable with their circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's the right. same. It's the same thing with doing drugs, man. Yeah, but, have, you, have you ever read uh, or heard of the book "Chasing the Scream" by Johan Hari? I don't think so. You should check it out, man. It, it, that's exactly what it talks about, though. It talks about like really. Uh, of course, people neur- neur- neurologically, you can get you know physically addicted to a drug, but most people they're really addicted to numbing that pain. 
Yes. And, uh, you know, they've, they've done experiments with rats, giving rats uh, in the one cell. They'll give the, the rats a little bit of heroin in their water, but they'll put them in real bad circumstances. And in those circumstances, the rats will they'll put the heroin water and regular water next to it. They all drink the heroin water. But if they put the rats in like a paradise, like a rat paradise where the rats can all have sex with each other, they're playing on wheels, they're doing all this stuff, they put the two bottles there, the rats will taste the heroin water, but they'll drink out of the regular water because, they, I mean, they're having a good time. They don't need to dull any pain. It's fascinating. It is. It's you know, crazy. You see, the, you see the same thing with people too. People that um, most of the drug use happens in poor, economically depressed places where, mm-hmm. you know, buildings are boarded up or there's abandoned land. There's not a lot of job opportunities. It's not, it's not, you know, rich areas, like nice neighborhoods that have high rates of drug use, at least not as high. Right. So yeah, I definitely think there's something to that. Um, especially with the stigma that comes with mental health being, you know, seeking mental health problem or seeking care for mental health, uh, government, military or not. Um, there's definitely something to that. So I had, a. Uh, at this point, I had graduated uh, away from Vicodin and Percocet to Oxycontin, and this was back before uh, Oxycontin stopped being a, a big thing in the black market. And I was spending about 400 bucks a day. Um, and of course, there's only one way to support a habit like that since, well, black market goods have astronomically inflated prices. You got to deal or you got to steal, as is often said in uh, drug treatment circles. Mm-hmm. So... What I did, I, I grew weed on the land I had. I mean, I was renting it, but nobody was ever out there. I grew weed on the land I had. I was uh, selling pain pills, selling heroin. I used to, <laughs> I'm not trying to make it out like I'm some type of Pablo Escobar or something, but I, I used to take trips to Florida back when you could pay cash to go to the doctor's office down there. I'd rent a, rent a van and fill it with my friends. We'd all drive down there and I'd pay for their prescriptions. Um, and, you know, I was living the high life for a while. I was buying whatever I wanted. I was doing big things, had nice clothes, just buying guns left and right. Um, well, was that like you're talking about going to Florida? Was that like when they would have like the, the pill mills? Exactly. Like, it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It used to be you would uh, you pay cash for whatever it is. Your pills and your doctor visit was all under one roof, one mm-hmm. bill. Um, so it was a couple thousand dollars and you'd, you'd walk away with several thousand dollars worth of pills. And, uh, of course that's long gone now, but that right. used to be a huge source of, of pain pills, at least, you know, at least on the Eastern coast, the United States, that in Mexico too. Uh, but anyway, at this point, even with all the money I was making, I still was not making enough money to actually support my habit. So I uh, decided to move on to shooting heroin, which is, of course, far cheaper. And I was doing meth at that point in time, too, uh, mostly just for fun, uh, at least at first. But I, I became just as addicted to that as I was to, to anything else. You know, I'm, I'm not like a lot of the people that you, uh, you have on this show where that they were completely innocent of all charges. I mean, I am, I am guilty as hell. Yeah, I don't yeah, think it I, I, don't, be I, don't, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty rare to find people who. I mean, I think most people I have on the show, you know, we, you, we could debate that. I think most people would agree. Listen, to this show that you know, smoking marijuana shouldn't be a crime. And for, for example, I would say that you know, I, I don't think it's a crime to uh, be shooting up heroin or to be using right. meth. But I mean, that's your own personal thing. It's a much harder I mean, sell. Yeah, that's, that's that's your own. Yeah, it's, it's personal responsibility. But I think. <laughs> 
most people have had on this show will recognize that they've made bad decisions and done oh, things yeah. they shouldn't do, right? I mean, yeah, I, I definitely fall into that camp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but you know what's funny though, John, is that really in retrospect, doing heroin probably saved my life because it got me through the darkest days of my life when I really wanted to die. It made it so I didn't feel so bad. Now, this is not an endorsement for anybody to go out and do heroin. Wow. Yeah. But I just, just from the perspective I have now, I mean, I think it did serve a purpose, even though it's caused me all these problems. I, I mean, I'm still here. So I don't know what I would have done if I wouldn't have had that crutch to lean on at that point in time. But I mean, that's, that's the way I see it now. Uh, I don't think it's a good way for you to treat whatever problems you're having, of course, and I wouldn't recommend anybody doing it. Right. But the fact of the matter is I can't change the past. And, and looking at it that way, now if I had to do it all over again, would I have done that? Uh, I would like to say no. But mm-hmm. there it is. So anyway, at this point in time, um, I, was, I was, had moved beyond my circle of friends as far as making sales uh, you know, of all types of drugs. And there was a guy that was in our kind of our circle of friends, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, he had gotten arrested leaving my house, uh, buying pain pills one day by the County Sheriff down there. So they took him to the Sheriff's department and they gave him the old talking to, and they, I'm sure told him like, Hey, look, you know, you help us get whoever got you these pills and we'll make sure that you don't go to jail tonight. We'll make sure that these charges go away or you get probation or, or, or whatever. Uh, because it's uh, not well known, small counties, rural areas will give people astronomically higher amounts of jail time than large cities, just because simple economics, if they leave you in the local jail, then they got to pay for you. But if they ship you off to state prison, well, then you're off their balance sheet. So uh, there's no doubt in my mind that, that this guy knew this score, is that people that got busted with possession beefs where I'm from, all the time got prison time. Now you go up to, you know, the Columbus, Ohio, the capital, you get arrested for possession of heroin, a small amount, they'll let you go on the spot. Or at least later that night after they booked you in. I mean, it's definitely not an evenly applied law. So at this point in time, uh, this guy came back around a couple of times and he had made multiple control buys from me, which is, I'm sure most of your listeners know, you uh, wear a wire that records a conversation and they, they <laughs> got to get you to say some magic phrase or whatever. Um, uh, didn't, it didn't, certainly didn't feel like that. I mean, it was just, oh, here you go, dude, you know, thanks. And that was it. Uh, He's got to say something back to you like, oh, so this is, you know, such and such pills, blah, blah, blah. And, and they probably have to get that confirmation back and forth. Right. Yeah. But you know, the funny thing was like, I was like thinking back on it. I was like, I don't think there's anything said like that. I don't know. It's irrelevant. Yeah. So, uh, unbeknownst to me, of course, he made these buys. And then one day I'm just hanging out at the house. It's the middle of the day. I'm on the second floor of my house. And at this point in time, I had lived out in the woods. I had a pretty long gravel driveway. It was probably about, uh, about an eighth of a mile long or so. Um, and the house was set back off the road. So you could see real good coming either direction. And I heard the sound, I had the window open and I heard the sound of gravel crackling. So I thought, what? what's going on here? So I look out the window and there's a Humvee and some Linco Bearcats, which are these other armored vehicles driving down my, my driveway. And I thought, oh crap. 
So fight or flight, I split, jumped out the window, took off running. Um, it, I mean, I don't remember large chunks of, of what happened at this point in time. I mean, my heart was pounding like crazy. And I, I, I got these really perceptual distortions in my memory where I just blanked and I pieced together what had happened later from people telling me and the cops telling me what had gone on. So what had happened is I had ran out the back of the house across the field on the, on the back side of the house. And there was a road on the other side of that field. Well, there was a sheriff's cruiser that had, was, was driving by the house on the backside that I just happened to ran in front of. And he got out, hit me with the taser. I hit the dirt, you know, pissed my pants. That was wonderful. Um, and I was, they, they arrested me, took me to jail. And, uh, the police had busted down my door, uh, and they had seized all kinds of things. Uh, I had several thousand dollars in cash on me, a pretty small amount of drugs. I had, you know, drug paraphernalia, I had a digital scale, some assorted pipes, you know, stems and, and whatnot. Uh, I also had pretty good size gun collection, including some, some, some hand-me-downs, some heirlooms that were from my family. Um, a Chevy S10, they had seized, uh, a Yamaha Banshee and YZ125, a dirt bike and a four-wheeler. All that stuff I had forfeited, they had seized it. And uh, also, this is really frustrating for me, is that obviously if you kick the door in at a house, you can't really lock it behind you once you've knocked it off its hinges. Mm -hmm. So they had just left the door kind of cocked halfway open, wasn't boarded up, wasn't nothing. So after the police had left and word spread of my arrest, somebody, I don't know who, came and stole just about everything that the cops left behind that was of value, including wow. all my personal stuff, like my medals, uh, pictures. I had a, my army buddies, many of whom are, are, are dead now. A, a, Everything that I Why had. Why would people point. steal pictures? Like, that's ridiculous. I, I, I mean, I know. The only other Crazy. thing that possibly could have happened is that the landlord would have picked all that stuff up when he went to go clean the house out. But he, he gave me back everything that was my personal effects. So somebody must take him. Hmm. Uh, anyway, bef before this had happened, they had taken me to the sheriff's department and the uh, narcotics detective for the sheriff's department, and you'll like this too, man. So the, the narcotics detective for the sheriff's department, he sits me down and I'm sitting in this interrogation room, which is, you know, 60 degrees, it's freezing cold in there and uh, my adrenaline's crashing. So I'm feeling real tired and sleepy and he comes in with his legal pad and he takes it and he sits it on the table and he said, all right, you give me a name. You give me a name of a supplier and I'll get you out of here tonight. I said, okay. So I took the legal pad and I wrote my own name down and I slid it across the table to him. Of course, he didn't think it was as funny as I did, but that was, <laughs> that was the last great act of defiance that I had gotten <laughs> the county sheriff. Uh, it, did, it did feel good at the time. I won't. <laughs> so uh, after, my, uh, after, after trolling the cops, they'd taken me to jail. And I sat there, I was charged with three felony threes, trafficking and dangerous drugs. And after arraignment, uh, I, I did have some money put away in, uh, that I had saved retainer for an attorney. 
<laughs> looking back now, I might as well have just, I should have just kept it. Uh, cause the guy really didn't do me any good. Uh, my bond was still set at a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it was super high at that point in time. Eventually long story short, what had happened is I had pled down to three felony for trafficking and dangerous drugs. I was facing 15 years originally. Mm -hmm. Um, but of course, you know, they, 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 they will charge you with these insanely high, uh, uh, charges just to try to get you to cop out to something that they could actually possibly take to trial and get a conviction. Right. And of course, nobody wants to sit in county jail. It's about, it's the second or it's the worst place to be. The number two worst place to be is, is state prison. So most guys will just say, you know, forget it. I want to ride out. I'll take whatever time you're going to give me. And that's, that's how, of course, they get their convictions most of the time. Most people, people know this if they think about it, but you know, most, most uh, criminal cases do not go to trial. The system could mm -hmm. not it would, it would break down tomorrow if they had to take every case of trial. You know that. But here's the thing, though, is that for a person that hadn't had anything on their record more than a speeding ticket ever, I got in three years in prison. Uh, the lawyer was absolutely of no help. I mean, it's just, it is absolutely nuts because if I was uh, living in Columbus at that time like I do now, I would have gotten probation, maybe a month in jail, if that. But like I said... A small county has got no problem sending you to the state prison for the most minor crimes. Number one, because they don't have a lot to do. And number two, it saves them money in the long run. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I had, uh, I had ridden up from the county jail to CRC, which is outside of Columbus and Central Ohio. It's Correctional Reception Center. That's the reception center for the Ohio State Prison System. And uh, – I would like to know on this ride. Uh, I was in that uh, the back of a sheriff's car with two other two other men. One uh, had uh, burglary charges, and he was doing a year and a half. And the other one was convicted of gross uh, sexual imposition. He had had some type of inappropriate contact, uh, for lack of a better term, with a uh, like a fourteen year old girl, and he got in four years. So I did I did uh, kind of look at him like, wait, this guy got a year more than I did. And he actually, there's a victim you can name with this person. Mm -hmm. So that, <laughs> that was very frustrating. Uh, uh, I started doing my prison time. And I really used to think that NCOs and officers in the army treated you like dirt. I mean, they do, but it's nothing like uh, compared to the treatment that corrections officers will, will, uh, will treat inmates with. Um, what, types of, what types of things did you experience from prison officers? Well, just at CRC, they, they do this. It's, it's kind of funny how many similarities there are between the military and prison. Like, it almost reminds me of boot camp where when you first get to, when you first go into the prison system, they, they try to kind of, I guess, break you down. So they, they talk super, super tough to you 24-7. And I mean, these, these, these COs, they have no problem getting physical with you either. I mean, I've seen guys get beaten up, uh, smacked around, uh, for really no reason whatsoever, just for something like mouthing off or, or even talking in line. Okay, you know, they got no problem pulling you out and you know, giving you a chicken wing with your arm and searching your stuff and all kinds of things like this. And uh, this is, I mean, this is also like, this isn't a prison that's 23 hours a day locked down. You have two men in a one man cell. And actually when I was there, it was so overcrowded that the, that the walkway or not the walkway, but the floor on the bottom um, of the cell house had actually a bunch of bunk beds in it. So it was, you know, we're talking, this is like well over double capacity of wow. this 
original design. Yeah. And then they just ran it like that. And, uh, but while I was there, uh, I qualified for this program that was for first offenders. It was, they, they called it, they called it boot camp, but basically it was like a treatment program. They sent you to, um, uh, what's it called now? Uh, Southeast Correctional Complex, which is uh, this prison that's about 45 minutes south of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and you go to uh, this place. It's a regular prison. And they send you through this program where you do, like I imagine, it's probably some mild physical conditioning. You do programs and classes and, and whatnot. That. And if you finish a program, they let you out in 90 days. So because I was a first-time offender, I qualified for this program. And I was like, oh, cool, you know, like I'll get out in three months. And uh, I made the mistake of telling a couple guys in the uh, cell block that I was getting this program. Well, about a week or two before I was getting ready to ride out to start the program, we came back from outside rec and uh, I was pulled out of my cell and so was my celly for a search. So we thought, okay, no big deal. We got nothing in the cell. And uh, the CEO, the lady uh, walks up to me and said, so are you afraid of somebody? I said, no. I said, are you, uh, you scared for your life? Somebody threatened you? Like what's going on here? And I said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And we said, we found a knife in your cell. So of course this was news to me. Uh, they found like a foot long poker that had obviously a homemade, homemade knife in my cell. Um, I've had a theory on this for a while. I think I had a nice pair. You could, uh, sometimes bring in shoes from the street, uh, when you, uh, we're going through reception and if, uh, if they met standards, you were allowed to keep them. And this is a pretty hot desirable commodity in prison because you can only buy usually a couple different pairs of shoes. And I had some nice air force ones. And I think one of the, one of the guys that was cool with the COs, I think he wanted them. So I'm pretty sure he put that in there. Well, anyway, long story short is I was sent to segregation because obviously this is a serious rule infraction. Um, I had a hearing a couple of days later, uh, they're just supposed to have like almost like a mini trial. Um, there, there was, they asked me, uh, do you plead guilty? I said, no, it's not mine. And they said, okay, we find you guilty. And <laughs> this is not exactly what I call due process. Yeah, it's not a jury of your peers. Really. Definitely not. <laughs> uh, so they sentenced me to what's called local control, which is long-term segregation. And I mean, this is 24 hour day lockdown. Uh, you don't get out of yourself for any reasons. Uh, these I mean, and it's ruled, at least the CRC, it's ran by the biggest group of psychopaths I've ever seen in one room besides the battalion talk when I was in the army. And uh, there was a guy there, uh, they used to call him Big Chew. He's one of the COs. And he ran first shift with an iron fist. And one day I hadn't seen, I'd been that back there for like three months and I had, uh, I hadn't seen the sunlight and I didn't, I didn't know how long. So, was it, not, so was this solitary confinement or, or no? No, it's two men to a cell. Okay. Um, the cells are, I think, probably about 14 feet uh, long by probably about 10 feet wide. There's a shower in them. I mean, it's not so bad as far as accommodations go in prison, um, unless you're on the first floor where the drains back up and the windows fog up and you're basically like in a, a semi-sauna most of the time. <laughs> It's, yeah, I mean, there is no there. This place has undergone inspection, obviously, every year. I don't know how it could possibly pass because there is right. no way that these cells. I mean, they just must put a sheet under them or something and say out of order. I mean, there's there's no way that they could pass inspection. So anyway, long story short, I asked for some rec. He said, "Okay, sure." So uh, 
he handcuffs me and um, we're going past the outside rec yard and I start to turn. He's like, no, keep going. So we go into this closet that has uh, washers and dryers and uh, strip cages, you know, for you to strip out in. So he throws me in the strip cage and while I'm still cuffed, this dude throws me on the ground and he just starts stomping my head as uh, hard as he can. I mean, I thought he was, I thought he was going to kill me. He kept kicking me over and over again. Yeah. My hands are cuffed behind me at this point in time. So I can't even defend myself. So after a few minutes, he stops. Like I I seriously thought I was going to die. And he says, well, there's your wreck for you. So he picks me back up, throws me in the cell. And uh, I'm just kind of standing there. And he's like, well, come here if you want them cuffs off. Otherwise you can wear them. I don't care. So then he uncuffs me. And usually when use of force reports, when there's use of force in, in Ohio prisons, you're supposed to see a medical officer the day of the use of force. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember you had Michael Montsevice on not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about the exact same thing that happened to him happened to me. I didn't see a nurse for two weeks. And when I finally see a, uh, a prison staffer that's not a, uh, a, not a corrections officer, I told him what happened. And they say, oh, my gosh, okay, let me go get the nurse. So they go get the nurse. The nurse takes one look at me and says, you don't have any bruises on you. Like, All right, okay. So I see how this works now. So <laughs> and I hadn't even left the reception center yet. After, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks after that, the um, case manager comes along and tells me that my security has been increased from level two, which is medium, to level three, which is like close max because of the knife ticket I had gotten. Now I was considered a greater security risk. And I mean, I'm a skinny, strung out, 130 pound kid with fair hair and fair skin. And well, I mean, boyish good looks, if I might say so myself, but, um, (laughs) this is not this stuff. Yeah. It's great for getting girls out in the real world, man, but it makes you a target in prison. (laughs) And, uh, I had been told that I was going to a Ross correctional institution, which is, that's the big kids playground. I mean, that's, it's full of you know, murderers, like real deal criminals, rapists, like people that commit violent crimes and people get stabbed there on a weekly basis. It's a, it's a pretty ugly place. So once, once she had told me that, that was another moment that hit me like a ton of bricks. And, uh, I guess the good news was I'd spent, I've been in the hole for so long. I only had about two years left of my sentence at this point. So I write out down to RCI and, uh, I'd, it was mostly pretty uneventful. I mean, typically down there, if you have less than four or five years, you're considered short time and people won't eat, will just completely ignore you uh, for the most part. Uh, the the one problem I did have is the very first day I got there, I was going through the chow line in the dining hall and uh, I get my tray and I sit down and I look at my bread and I pick up one piece of bread and it's got a note under it. So I picked up the note, I read the note and uh, well, this, uh, this guy that was at the end of the chow line, he decided he thought I was pretty cute. And he, he, uh, <laughs> he, he had some choice words for me that will try to keep his PG rated. And, uh, I, I looked up and I see him making a kissing motion and, and winking at me. So I, I did the only thing that I could think to do is I picked the tray up. I walked up right to him and I beat him over the head with it. And I kept hitting him with the tray until the CS broke us up. And I mean, that's that is what you got to do in these type of places i and looking back now i am kind of glad i did it because it probably saved me a lot of trauma in the long run uh 
that at the end of that first year at RCI, I had gotten a security review. And I think you'll like this too, John, is this shows you how really how broken the system is, is that mm-hmm. uh, when you go through your security review, they tell you like, okay, so they look at the number of like tickets, like, like uh, infractions you've had. And um, if you have too many infractions, they will not reduce your security. But if you don't have any at all, they won't reduce it either because they're very suspicious of what you got away with. So it points to the fact that the system is so broken that it's the expectation that people get in fights, that we cannot control the security. So so they're like, nobody ever would get through here without any tickets. Something's something's wrong here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's crazy, man. So they decided to reduce my security. I get downgraded to level two medium, and I rode out to Noble Correctional Institution, which is uh, southeastern part of Ohio. Um, place they call gladiator school because it, it's, you know, well known for fist fights, you know, surprise. And, uh, I, I mostly kind of, I, I did a lot better there as far as it was, I was finally starting to feel like a human being again, because one thing I left out of this story in the first place is that I detoxed for a long time when I got, uh, when I got arrested because I was not only was I doing heroin and meth, I was also taking methadone, which is a very long acting drug. So it take me it took me about a year and a half before I really felt like a real person again. And I think that's why and it's I left. not like they gave you any help with detoxing. I mean, yeah. you just I mean, you just get thrown in, right? Yeah, There's yeah. No- they don't even give you a change of clothes after you sweat through them. I mean, it's yeah. supposedly some some gels are are a little better about that now, but I I find that hard to believe because mm-hmm. that's uh, resources that they don't want to expend. Um, I've never seen it myself. Uh, but I, I started to actually feel like getting involved with some things, maybe doing some vocational training or um, taking some college classes, learning a skill. Well, I was uh, disappointed to find out that the only thing that they offer at this prison is college classes. And I didn't, I didn't even know what I wanted to take. I thought I would learn carpentry or uh, plumbing or something like that, which they used to have all these vocational training programs at Ohio prisons, but they've almost all been cut down to nothing uh, because of budgetary concerns, you know, supposedly. Um, The problem is, you know, it's called the department of rehabilitation and correction, but the the problem is that the rehabilitation is, is on you. It's there. You're going to get very little help from prison officials. Unfortunately, I even signed up for drug treatment. And it wasn't until I was about two weeks before I got out that they sent me down. They're like, oh, yeah, you can start your drug treatment now. It's like, yeah, <laughs> no thanks, guys. I don't even have enough time to finish the program. Um, one thing that I did get involved with is the, uh, what's a group that we called NEVO, and that stood for a Noble Incarcerated Veterans Organization. And uh, this also speaks to how broken the system is. It, that There was about 2,200 people at this camp, and there is about – almost 180 vets that were in this, in this, uh, organization we had. And we didn't really do much. Um, there wasn't much we could do. You're supposed to now, supposedly you have like a little better access to VA resources when you're in prison. Um, but as far as like medical care, you get the same care as everybody else, which is (laughs) hardly any. Uh, and I mean, about the only thing we had was hats. But the cool thing was it was a chance for guys, many of whom were in my exact same situation, to talk to people who were like-minded, who kind of had similar experiences. And, and we did start like a peer, um, kind of like a peer counseling system where there was a certain, if you were having a hard time or if you wanted to get something off your chest, 
there was a list of people. And so you could go tell the CEO and they would go and get one of these other guys from one of the dorms and bring you guys to a place where you could talk to each other at any time of day, which was actually pretty cool of them. Um, and I know, you know, I've sitting here and I've <laughs> trashed the system this entire time, which it definitely deserves it. But mm-hmm. one thing I will say though, for like quite a few CEOs down there, um, I mean, a lot of those guys had military experience too. And that's probably the only reason they were cool with me because if you have that, they'll at least kind of see you as a human being. But, uh, I had much less problems with them than I did anywhere else. Uh, and also, uh, is the amount of vets that were down there for like drug, drug abuse problems, which really kind of speaks to the theme that ties this whole thing together. I mean, it was, I, th- I think it had to have been at least 150 of that, 180. And the rest were property crimes, burglary, theft, stuff like that. And Which probably were related to drug use yeah, anyway. I, I so. bet, yeah. It's all, I mean, I think it's all probably related to the war on drugs. Uh, about the only th- thing that happened down there, I, I read this book when I was down there uh, that's called uh, For a New Liberty. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very <laughs> Rothbard. I was like, oh, I read the book, and it's funny, is that at the time I was like, oh, it's interesting. And that was all the impact it had. I mean, I put it back on the shelf. <laughs> and uh, so that was that book was in the prison yeah. library. Just yeah, there was a copy. Pretty of it cool. There. Wow. There was some other good stuff too. Looking back on it, there was um, um, see, I think Democracy: The God That Failed was down there too. There's a couple mm-hmm. other ones. Uh, let's see, but uh, last six months I was in prison. So there's a program also in Ohio called Transitional Control, which uh, this is actually one of the better things that the DRC does. I mean, they shouldn't be throwing people in prison for victimless crimes in the first place. But uh, the fact that they do, uh, well, at least you can spend the last six months of your sentence in a halfway house. So you can at least kind of get on your feet. And uh, I qualified for this program. So the last six months I spent at a halfway house that was in Southeast Ohio. Um, I was able to get a job and uh, work on, save up some money, uh, kind of ease back into society. Uh, because that is also, that's a really difficult adjustment for a lot of people to make when they get out of prison is just the the sheer amount of people. And and then also it's people in prison are very mindful of each other's personal space. But if somebody kind of gets too close to you in line at Walmart, uh, you might, you might have the impulse to just throw an elbow back behind you, which is obviously something you can't do in civil society. So the halfway house was definitely uh, good for that, especially because I had, I had no idea where I was going to live at this point in time because my family was obviously uh, pretty upset with my, uh, my, my performance since I had left the military. We were like, we're not on speaking terms at that point in time. And that six months went by. I had some money saved up. I kind of reconciled with my parents and I got out and I moved back there and I was on post-release control, which is basically like extra probation they, they can give you at the discretion of the judge and the prosecutor. It's not extra probation, but it, it, for all intents and purposes, it is. It's just not something that's agreed on the, in the first place. So, so you're out at this point in time and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in your, so in the period of time that, that you were really using drugs and selling drugs after you left the military. Did you hold any, like, uh, any jobs at that point? I mean, were you like, what type of things were you doing for money? Uh, I worked, I worked for an ambulance company for a while. I did, I did do EMS, um, Mm -hmm. until I lost that job and I could for using drugs, but I did, I did briefing and I also did, uh, I did work at a Firestone, but it was just really basic stuff that anybody off the street can do, like changing oil and, and mounting and balancing tires on a car. 
Yeah, so you you get out and you don't have, I mean, any skills really. None. Um, you have this record now tied around your neck. The, oh, yeah. the stigma, stigma of a felon. So, wh- where did you go from there? How did you how did you pull yourself up? Yeah, well, it it you know it turns out uh, none of the job skills I had, I was qualified to be in any of those markets anymore. And uh, I had a friend that would uh, repair cars and uh, buy beat up cars, fix them, and sell them. So he had, he had kind of helped me. He'd take me under his wing as far as like learning how to fix cars, how to diagnose them and, and, uh, how to, how to sell them. And it's gotten much harder to do this as the price of cars has gone up. But Mm -hmm. even a few years ago, you could buy a cheap crappy car for a thousand dollars, uh, put three or $400 into it and turn around and sell it for $2,000. So I had applied to, you know, I applied Especially to, in Ohio with, with no inspections. Right? Yeah, exactly. Can't do that in <laughs> exactly, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier to get away with. <laughs> so I had, I still had no idea what I was going to do at this point because the only thing I ever wanted to be, it was a doctor. And, uh, I was still kind of having trouble with the fact that I was never going to be one. Uh, so I thought, well, this, I guess will work. I mean, I got to eat and I, I continued to, you know, I, with the money I'd saved up, I I bought some basic hand tools and I bought a cheap Chevy Cavalier that I had turned around and I'd flipped and I just started keeping a lookout for for crappy used cars to buy and fix up. And after about a year and a half of doing this, which at that point I had made enough money to move out of my parents' house. After about a year and a half of doing this, I I decided, well, I've got nothing else going on, so I might as well start turning wrenches. I mean, the skills that an EMT has and the skills that a mechanic has, there's actually a lot of overlap in those two skill sets. So, except the, the difference is uh, uh, people typically don't get sued if you screw up as your job as a mechanic. So, right. and, and people don't <laughs> die either. It's just, it's just the <laughs> yeah, you really screw up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I started applying to, to car dealerships. And I had a heck of a time getting hired. I had applied to every single dealership in the town I was living in. And I got denied all of them. And because uh, uh, they, they want, they, uh, they run background checks on you. And plus at that point in time in that town, I'd had a, a bit of a reputation. People would kind of, mm-hmm. you know, when I got busted, my, my picture was front page color in the paper. Uh, it's definitely, I needed a, needed a change of scenery anyway. So, I, I moved up to Columbus, capital city, and I started applying to every single dealership I could find. And it probably took me, I think it was over 20 for sure. It might've been even over 30 applications until I finally found a place that was one to take me on. So another thing that's really hard for people that get out of prison to do is rent an apartment because just about every landlord and every rental company will run background checks on prospective tenants. Mm-hmm. And it, often to them, it doesn't matter what that you got arrested for because the, the, the way they see it, any, any type of criminal activity is a risk to their investment. So typically they won't, once that you get flagged as a felon, a lot of places will not even consider it. And I can't tell you how many times that I would apply for an apartment. I'd meet the landlord in person and I'd say, hi, my name is Matt. I'm a U.S. Army veteran. I'm this, I'm that. I'd like to rent your apartment. And they say, oh, great. That's wonderful. Thank you for your service. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll rent it to you. And then the conversation goes, okay, well, uh, one last thing I got to tell you, um, I'm a convicted felon. And it's just me. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not for rent. I can't rent this to you. Uh, and that gets really frustrating after a while. And 
something else that doesn't get talked about a lot is just the amount of roadblocks in your way. Once you get out of prison, I mean, it's no small wonder that the recidivism rate in Ohio is, is 85%. But after I got a foothold, uh, I started doing a lot better. And, uh, you know, I'd love to tell you that I've got some great kind of outreach going on where I help people in this. But the truth is, John, is that I'm still trying to put the pieces of my life back together. Yeah. And, and I think that's important to, uh, to point that out, man, because, you know, I do have, you know, a lot of the there's not a lot of my guests. I don't know. It's, it's some of my guests th- that I have on who, you know, they've been able to, and I don't know how they do it. I- I'm blown away how they're able to get out of prison and land on their feet and come out and the, you know, start nonprofits. Like you, you mentioned M- Michael Monsivice. That, that guy blows my mind. It's amazing. Um, but he kind of had, when he was still in prison, um, he had that, he had his mindset right. He knew what he wanted to do. Um, he was already looking forward. So everybody's different. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's just awesome that um, you've been able to, to turn that corner and you're working on yourself. Um, and, you know, I mean, the last question I really have for you, because if you look at, you know, you've just told an incredible story, um, probably a story that a lot of people can relate to, maybe in the military, maybe not in the military, maybe you know, str- struggling in, in different parts of life led them towards, you know, trouble with drugs or, or things of that nature. But to be able to come through that and now be on the other side – if you had to attribute it to like, I don't know, like a, a personal characteristic or a trait that you have or a mantra, um, you know, w- what do you credit being able to, that has helped to, to carry you through that, that keeps you going, that, that keeps pushing you to, to really, you know, want to maximize your value in life? Well, the really, there was one moment where I, I got a glimpse of my future self when I was in prison and there was this old man who had no teeth. His name was Smitty. He was in his late, Oh, I guess it would have been sixties. He was a Vietnam vet and him and I had actually grew up in the same area and we kind of got talking. We had a ton in common and in him, I saw my future self in that prison and I did not want that for myself. Uh, and the, it's, it sounds corny, but the real the truth is, you just you gotta want you gotta want sobriety. You gotta want that more than you do anything else. And and the truth is, you're not gonna get there. You're not gonna succeed until you are ready to quit. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate we, we, that we can't make the people we love that have this type of problem quit sooner. That we can't make them want it. But the fact of the matter is, until you have that internal motivation you're going to have a very difficult uphill battle staying away from, from doing drugs or, or anything like that. It's destructive behavior. Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, I'm sure there's people out there listening, unfortunately, who you know probably have a love, a loved one that they're watching deal with this. And you, I mean, you know, there are things you can do, but there's not, you can't, you can't make someone, you can't make someone quit. You may, you can't make someone, um, you know, have that motivation to, to, to change your life, to, to put a stop to the drug use. Um, as hard as that is to, to really, uh, wrap your head around, but you know, Matt, you do have your own podcast and, um, I want to give, give you a chance to, to talk about that. Talk about maybe, you know, what your, what your vision vision is with the podcast, you know, what you talk about on a week to week basis. Well, thanks, man. So yeah, the podcast is called The Status Quo. It's at thestatusquo.net where you can find uh, blog posts, articles we write, and all the episodes. It's also on all your podcatchers. Um, Status is spelled S-T-A-T-I-S-T uh, in case 
you're wondering. I know that's not exactly a common word outside of some circles. But so here's the thing is that I discovered through this journey that I had been lied to so many times about the military, about the wars, about the police. We just, we, we are propagandized from the time we're five years old to the grave in this country. Mm-hmm. So I really started wondering what I'd else I'd been lied to about. And that's what really led me to libertarianism. Uh, anti-war is my biggest issue. And I'm not a commie. I never have been. I was always a right winger. Uh, and I couldn't really, my, I just couldn't really see myself getting any interest to that mindset. So I figured I would go and see what these libertarian guys that I was hearing about had to say. And once I really started digging into a lot of the great writers, the ideas won me over. I saw how horrible the state is, even to its own people, as I know very well. And if we actually want to have like a just and sustainable society, we got to shrink this thing as much as we can. And we, we got to free people from the mental cages that they're in because war is the health of the state. The worst things it does are the same things that are empowered. You know, I want to, it's, it's, it's about issues for me. I want to stop the war on drugs, the war on terror. Uh, but first we got to get people to see that, that trusting these pathological liars that are in charge of, of the government, even when they say that they want to end these things, it's a, it's a huge mistake. So on our show, we talk about anti-war stuff. We talk about the police state. And we also talk a lot about military and vets issues because there's a, a crossover between the veteran community and the libertarian community that I just, I don't really see it as being served very, very well. So that was really the impetus behind the podcast was to show guys that had, had you know, that had been in the military that, you know, you can still be a patriot and be anti-war. These two things are not mutually exclusive. So that, that's uh, really what it's about is it's about finding, it's about, I want these, I want vets to find what I did, which was freedom in an unfree world. And you don't have to give up your identity to do it. So that's what the show is about. Uh, we also do some history and some politics too, uh, but the show is mostly raging against the wars. That's awesome, man. The statist quo. Check it out. Matt Freeman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, John. I really appreciate you doing this, man. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Matt Freeman. Um, Just a, you know, I told Matt this during the show and after the show that I really think this episode is going to touch a lot of people because there are a lot of people, a lot of people who have served time in the military they might not have the exact same story as him, might not even be that similar. Um, you know, maybe they weren't discharged with bad papers, but they went to war. You know, they suffered. There's a lot of people um, suffering with different things, different unseen injuries from war uh, that are living in this country. And you can see that so blatantly obvious that there's a big problem just by looking at the suicide rate of, uh, of our military. Uh, when they come back here and reintegrate back into regular day society. So, you know, it took a lot of courage, I'm sure, for Matt to share his story. And also, you know, he's doing a podcast about it too. So I'm so happy for him that he's able to find that outlet and he's healing himself, working on himself, and uh, he's helping others too at the same time. So check out his podcast, The Status Quo. I will link to it 
on the show notes page. And you know what, guys? I don't have a lot else to say. I'm just going to plug the Lions of Liberty Pride because if you're not in the Lions of Liberty Pride, uh, you know, I, I don't know what you're doing with your life. So probably want to check that out. Go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Uh, why wouldn't you want our bonus content? It's uh, the greatest bonus content out there as far as, as far as I'm concerned. We have some fantastic shows. Honestly, I like some of our shows that are our bonus shows better than our regular content. And our regular content is awesome. So you can hear all of our bonus content. Um, you'll get access to our private Facebook group. Depending what level you join, you get different things, merchandise, things like that. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. That is all I have for you guys today. Please share this episode. Share last week's episode. Share every episode of Felony Friday. And uh, I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.